Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 171 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, we got a lot of exciting things for you today, one of which is we're going to tell you who won the High Impact Leader 5 Million Download Getaway Contest. We also have an incredible guest. Um, some of you know him uh, because he was on the podcast about a year ago. His name is Jason Romano, and he is a former producer at ESPN. He's now a speaker author, writer. He's helping leaders um, on a number of different fronts, but he's got a brand new book and he talks about his relationship with his dad. And I often think it's the like emotional issues that sink leaders. And he goes into places that, frankly, I haven't seen a whole lot of people in um, Christian ministry and leadership go into where he just talks about growing up in an alcoholic home and um, talks about the impact that had on him and how he really struggled through a lot of his adult life with that and with the relationship with his dad. It's a very, very honest account. And his dad's still alive, and they actually have worked out a relationship in the midst of it. So it's a powerful story. I would encourage you just to really listen, and, and whether you came from that kind of a background or not, we all have stuff in our past that impacts our present, and we just want to make sure that that doesn't kind of sabotage our future, which often it does. So you're going to really enjoy that. Everything we talk about is going to be in the show notes. But uh, let me share a couple things with you. First of all, thank you to all of you who were part of the 5 million download giveaway. We gave away, well, about $1,000 worth of coffee, Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts, and hundreds of you won that. We were just so pleased to get that into a lot of hands. And then we had the grand prize draw for a big green egg, an extra large big green egg. And if you know anything about smoking, you know how much that extra large difference kind of makes. And a visit from me. And so, uh, man, we had 1,600 people submit ballots to win. And it wasn't just like, yeah, I want to win or, you know, click this button. You had to tell us your story. So me and my team, mostly my team, read through 1,600 of your stories to pick the winner. And I got to tell you, it was hard. It was hard. It was hard. So we just had so many stories, so many like, man, you guys are amazing what you do. And we had such a hard time choosing that we actually created like uh, nine additional prizes. So we gave away copies of the High Impact Leader course, advanced copies to nine leaders. But um, you know who won it? Well, it's a church leader in New England who has an incredible task of trying to transition a 200-year-old church after a 35-year ministry. He's a young leader. He's 30 years old. A lot of you are young leaders who listen to this. And uh, he's going to be the senior guy next year. And his name is Kirk Patterson from North Reading, Massachusetts. And, uh, well, we actually recorded the call where I let him know he was the winner. Here's an excerpt. Well, Kirk, I just wanted to let you know, we went through 1,600 entries, and uh, congratulations. You are the winner of an extra large big green egg, and I'm going to come hang out with you. Are you serious? Yeah, you won. Congrats. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, thank you so, so much. We actually, me and the team, we went through 1,600 um, entries, over 1,600, and uh, yeah, yours came out on top. So there you go. Congrats. That, that oh, was such an honor. Such an honor. I, I'm, I'm giddy. 
<laughs> well, cool. So, do you barbecue? That's what I really need to know because there'll be a, there'll be sixteen hundred really angry people. Like, if you're not going to use the big green egg, I just want <laughs> you to know that. Let me put it this way: I'm originally from East Tennessee. Okay, I, li- I live in New England. Like, barbecue is they call it one thing up here, but it's not what I call it. Kurt, congratulations. I got to tell you, it was uh, super tough to be able to pick that out, but we're thrilled. It's you. Thanks to everybody for playing. And speaking of the High Impact Leader, guess what? Uh, Coming up soon, we're going to reopen the High Impact Leader course. It's all about getting your life and leadership back and being able to manage that tension of of just trying to get it all done. And you know, you've got a growing ministry or busy life and a growing family and There aren't enough hours in the day. If you've ever lived in that tension, you do not want to miss the High Impact Leader course when it opens next week. So next week at this time, it'll be open. But in the meantime, I got something for you. Um, A calendar template that thousands of leaders are now using already. And we just redesigned it and made it available to you for free this week. So please go to thehighimpactleader.com, download your free High Impact Leader calendar template, and I include some brief teaching on that. It opens up a free video course to you too, which which I think you're going to really enjoy as a precursor to the release of the full High Impact Leader a week from now. And in the meantime, we want to thank the partners of this podcast. Man, we couldn't do what we do without them. And Ministry Grid has been an incredible partner for us over the last few months. And if you have not checked them out yet, please do that. Go to lifeway.com slash ministrygrid because by the end of the year, their free offer is going to expire. Um, they will give you first-time guest team training until December 31st. Now, what is it? It is a way to train your staff and train your volunteers online, on their phones, at their convenience. Last year, 400,000 leaders found training on Ministry Grid, and they have like prefab courses. You can do your own. It's totally customizable. If you're serious about training, don't miss out on Ministry Grid. So just go to lifeway.com slash ministry grid to get started. And if you do that by the end of the year, you'll get some free training thrown in as well. Well, that's an awful lot to cover in these first few minutes, but uh, hey, how about we just jump into a meaningful and heartfelt, I think life-giving conversation with former ESPN producer, Jason Romano. Well, I'm so excited to have Jason Romano back on the podcast. Uh, last time, Jason, when you were here, we chatted all things ESPN, and I took um, you know, both tiny little pieces of my sports knowledge and applied them to the podcast, but I know you had a lot of feedback on that episode, and your life has changed a lot in the last year. You're no longer at ESPN. You're doing your own thing. Tell us all about it, Jason, and uh, go back to what you did at ESPN, and then the changes that have happened since we last caught up. Yeah. First of all, thank you for having me, Carrie. It's an honor to be on with you. And I, I'm such an admirer of your podcast and a big fan of what you do and, and the people that you talk to. So I thank you for that. But it has been a, a whirlwind, uh, you know, yeah. 17 years almost working at ESPN. I, I was a, a TV producer there, a radio producer, a, um, a talent producer where I booked guests and a talent TV producer and then a social media producer my last five years there. And uh, it was quite the journey, uh, a lot of fun. And I, I have no regrets over any of the time I worked there. It, it's, it's been a blast. And, and I'm still here in Connecticut, right near ESPN. So I haven't really left too far away yeah. from where I worked for many years. But uh, it was February of 2017. 
And it was just time. It, it was something that had spurned on my heart for a couple years, uh, from 2015 or so, when I really felt this call from the Lord to, to do more for Him. I didn't really have an exact path on what that meant, mm-hmm. but it was definitely something I wanted to do uh, and felt God wanted me to do. And so through the process of prayer, first of all, and then talking and networking with a lot of different people in the Christian space, as much as outside of the Christian space as well, uh, just kind of felt it was time. And then an opportunity came about a year ago as we taped this in October of 2016 to leave ESPN and go work for a sports and faith ministry and host a podcast, much like we're doing here, and uh, write articles and manage a website and have some bandwidth and some opportunity to do some speaking and then certainly writing uh, my book. It's been it's been really great. And it's funny, you think when you leave ESPN, Carrie, that you'll actually have more time available. And it's actually been quite the opposite. It's <laughs> really? been more busier than ever. So You've been slammed. I get it. <laughs> but I in a good it. way. It's all yeah. good. Well, I know a lot of listeners already knew you from the Mike and Mike show and so on and your profile at ESPN. So even though you're kind of behind the scenes, you know, but somewhat on the camera, you sure. met a lot of athletes over your 17 years there, right? I, I imagine I it's probably like, who didn't you meet as opposed to who did you meet? It was tons and tons of athletes, especially for the eight years that I was a talent booker. Uh, I mean, that's what I did. I booked the athletes and the coaches and the analysts and the reporters that you see on these ESPN shows every day. And that's my job. So I built relationship after relationship with public relations people and media people and marketing people and directly with these coaches and athletes. So yeah, I was very blessed to, to know and, and to still know a lot of these athletes that, uh, that we watch every Sunday and every week on different sports. I know the foreword of your new book, Live to Forgive, which we're going to talk about because it's really your story, the story behind the story, which uh, I thought is just a powerful story, which is why I wanted to share that with leaders and listeners, because I think a lot of people will be able to relate. But the foreword from the book is by Daryl Strawberry, um, you know, yeah. Hall of Fame baseball player. Is he Hall of Fame? I mean, Not I Hall do know of Fame, but he's, he's Mets Hall of Fame. So you're kind of right there. Oh, there he's you in go. the New there York Mets go. Hall of Fame. Yeah. Uh, but he had a real struggle. He's somebody who, who was a Christian, but really struggled with alcohol, with drugs, with a lifestyle, womanizing, you know, sex that was out of control. Yeah. Um, and, and you guys connected about that. And, you know, he's got a very public story about that. Um, that must have been a lifestyle thing that you just saw that was out of control a lot in the pro sports world, did you? You know, it, yes, to an extent. I, I can't say personally that I was in a situation where I saw an athlete doing something and was just like, man, this is really, really bad. But certainly yeah. when you cover sports on a daily basis, from a producer role, uh, you see stories that are are just uh, very sad and they make you shake your head and you're just like, man, why can't they get their life in order? They have, in essence, what the world would say is everything in the palm of their hands and they're still messing up. Daryl Strawberry is one of those guys. Now, to give you a little background on Daryl, he is my childhood sports hero, yeah. which is why I smile whenever I tell people that he wrote the forward because if you asked 10-year-old Jason Romano if someday you write a book, Daryl Strawberry would be a part of that. I would have just been so excited. I mean, he, yeah. he, was a, he was on my wall. I had posters of him on my wall. I kept stats of him uh, for every single game that he would play in. I mean, I was just enthralled with this man. But then his career took a downward spiral in the 90s with 
drugs, with alcohol, with abuse, and really just you you felt bad because you felt like it was a career that could have been Hall of Famer, you know, mm-hmm. baseball Hall of Fame if he had just stayed on the straight and narrow because yeah. he was that type of player. Uh, and I met Daryl. He came to ESPN in 2009, and we spent the day together. It's still one of my favorite days ever at ESPN, and it was just me and him, and I took him around from show to show and was helping him promote the book that he had out at the time. And we connected on a deeper level because of the messed up life, if you will, that he lived. Mm. And he asked me about me. He had become recently become like sold out for the Lord and asked me in this conversation that we had at the cafeteria that day, you know, what about you? Tell me about you. Tell me about your family. And we got to the, to the subject matter of my father. And that's when the conversation took this turn that I totally did not expect. And honestly, the relationship took this turn that I didn't expect because when I started telling him about my dad and his struggle with alcohol, his struggle with depression, just the really broken relationship that him and I had, Daryl just completely became uh, interested in a way that no real celebrity or any type of person like that had ever been interested in my life. And he started asking me questions about how I felt, about how... My dad, uh, you know, acted in certain situations. I mean, there was just a relatability, I think, from my from my dad and with Daryl Strawberry because they were in very similar situations in terms of the abuse, and Daryl was able to come out of that. And he just took a real interest in the relationship with my father, and he stayed in touch with me for many years. And every single time we would talk or he would text me, the first thing he would always say was, "How's your dad?" And unfortunately, for many years, I, I had to tell him, unfortunately, that it was just the same, Daryl. Nothing's changed, and he's not doing really great. So that's kind of how the connection with Daryl came. And and unfortunately, uh, Daryl is one of many athletes that have gone through situations like this where they struggle with abuse. It's just there. Yeah. You know, it's so. funny. I, I, I was in radio for eight years, and I saw it even in that behind the scenes that these people who were pretty talented, and I worked in Toronto radio, were pretty unhappy. And some of them, not all of them, but some of them struggled with substance abuse and the whole deal. And that's actually a good segue into this book because I don't know whether a book gets more personal than the book that you're releasing, you know, Live to Forgive, because it is your story growing up with an abusive alcoholic father as, you know, a boy, a young man, and then, you know, a dad and a husband yourself. And just this pretty heartbreaking story of, you know, your hopes and your dreams and what you hoped your dad would do and how it didn't yeah. really work out. So um, let's go back to the day that you kind of opened the book on your, I don't know how old, but your dad decided to take you and your two brothers to an Eagles game, right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So we were trying to put this book together and, and, and figure out, okay, where do we start in telling the story? And it's easy to kind of, let's go back to the beginning and take us from yeah. there. But in this case, this was the first time where I ever really felt scared and uh, just remembering the feeling of saying, oh my gosh, something's wrong with my dad. Like this was that moment. And what was supposed to bring us together, and I write this in the book too in the beginning, what was supposed to bring us together, our mutual love of sports is what actually tore us apart. Hmm. And so the story opens up with uh, a time in 1984. I was 10, 11 years old, almost there. And my dad uh, 
comes home and my dad's a big New York Giants fan and my brother Chris is a big Philadelphia Eagles fan. And my dad comes back and he's like, hey guys, we got tickets to go see the Giants and the Eagles. It's an actual football game. I'm going to take you guys to. And this was the first time I had ever uh, been to an actual professional football game. Now I'm right. a Dallas so Cowboys never fan. Seen the stadium. You've never, never seen, seen the nothing. players. It was all through TV or radio. Correct. And so to go to a stadium is a very big moment for a young boy. I still remember. And, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And as a, as a Cowboys fan, I just, I remember not even caring that these were the two teams that my team were, you know, sort of enemies with. I just wanted to go and experience a football game in person. And I remember the ride down and how wonderful it was. It's about a four hour ride. And, and my dad and my stepmom, Patty and my brothers and I, and so we go down and um, what started off as an amazing experience and walking and seeing this giant stadium and seeing that field for the first time when you walk down into uh, into the into the vet, the veteran stadium is what it was called, turned ugly very quickly. And, you know, I had seen my dad drink in the past. You know, I had been to bars with him. He would take us to bars when we were kids and he would give us some change and we would go play pinball and he would go have his drinks over at the bar with his friends. So I was kind of around that, but it wasn't until this game where I saw the sort of negative side of what this did to him. And he he became very angry, very uh, intoxicated quickly and became very angry, uh, very uh, vulgar with other fans. Remember, my dad was a, a Giants fan and we're in Philadelphia right. where they are not the most friendly fans. They are very <laughs> passionate for their team. And I know that now as an adult and having covered football for a long time, but at 10 years old, I just wanted to go watch a game. With and my was dad. it not true that you were in the section where the fans were the rowdiest and the meanest too? Yes, the 700 level. That's what they called it, the 700 level at the vet in Philadelphia. And we sat up there and my dad and these fans are going at each other. And, uh, you know, my dad is a pretty mellow kind of level-headed guy when he's sober, when he is drinking and drunk, per se, he can get very rowdy, very angry, uh, very vulgar, very abusive. And uh, that that was the first time when I really started to see that. Uh, I thought he was going to get in fistfights, uh, you know, legitimate fistfights with people. And I got scared. You know, you're 10 years old. My brother is eight. My other brother is six. Like, we're, we're little kids yeah. with their dad. And seeing that is very, very, um, uh, it's, it's just, it, it just, it sticks with you. You know, you yeah. don't forget that. And it really it hit us hard. Um, so that was how I opened the book. And that's kind of the first time that I ever really felt scared in the sort of situation that my dad was in. And, uh, you know, it, it's the earliest memory I have of him being drunk. And it's not any situation. There, there might be a lot of people listening, Carrie, who have experienced something like this as a child. And it's funny because I don't really think about this too often. I really mm. don't. But as we started to put together this book and I started to have this sort of therapeutic experience on remembering my life uh, as a kid growing up with an alcoholic father, this was the first memory that came to mind. And mm. uh, it's funny how that kind of sticks with you even now. I'm in my, my early 40s and I still remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah, it's so strange because, you know, it's not like... Um, this was an isolated incident. I mean, I think we've all seen even parents, it's like, well, you know, you had that bad night or you barely remember it. But this was actually your first memory of a pattern of yeah. some really deep hurt. And one of the reasons I think this is such an important conversation, and I'm so glad you wrote the book, 
is a lot of us as adults, we walk through life with wounds that we collected as kids. And you realize, wow, this is not only impacting, you tell the story of, you know, you and your dad, but that also impacted who you became as a man, right? Like we, we bear these things and uh, this is impacting your leadership. It's impacting how you're a husband. It's impacting how you yourself are a dad. T- talk to us about the car ride home because that was maybe even more terrifying than the game. Yeah. I mean, the game itself was this experience. And I think even though we were scared and frightened of, of uh, seeing my dad in this, in this state, you know, it was still a football game. And so mm-hmm. as a kid, I would still gravitate towards that side of it, the sports side of it. So watching a football game at least made it somewhat memorable and being able to see a real live game, in, you know, before my very eyes. But then you have to get in the car and go home. And this is the mid 1980s. And, you know, getting behind the wheel and driving while intoxicated was still certainly viewed upon as not a good idea. It wasn't mm-hmm. highlighted the way it came sort of in the the 90s. And the, yeah, that was you know, 30 the, years ago. And it was yeah. still a crime, but people, yeah, they people did, did it, it I think, more frequently. Yeah, you yeah. get away with it more frequently. And so we were riding home and my dad was driving. And it was one of the most terrifying experiences I can remember um, and not just one of the first times. I mean, there's been many times, unfortunately, when I was a kid in a car with my dad uh, driving drunk. But this was one of those where it was four hours and wow. we were coming home. And my st- I just remember my stepmom and my dad screaming at each other probably for half the ride. You know, watch where you're going or get get on your this side of the road or stop swerving. I mean, she was legitimately trying to guide him home. And I'm not sure why she didn't drive, to be honest with you. I I mean, thinking back now, like, why wouldn't you have just taken the wheel and driven? But my dad was sort of the guy in charge and he was driving home. And then we, you know, we had a a time where we almost spun out. We did kind of a 360 in the road and we're all screaming like, oh my gosh, what is happening? And my dad is screaming, stop screaming, I'm fine. And it was just one of those really traumatic moments, you know, and we we made it. Yeah, it's terrifying. We could have been killed. We really just point blank say it. We could have been killed or killed somebody. Or I mean, you know, the fact that you got home is unbelievable. Yeah. And it's happened more than once. You know, it's it's not all documented in the book, every single incident, but it definitely was at least two or three times that I can remember being in the car when he was drinking. And, uh, you know, but when you start spinning out and when you start swerving and when you start doing a 360 in the middle of the road, that's when you start thinking, oh my gosh, this is serious. It's fine. It's one thing to drive home. It's another thing to actually have that experience almost take your life. It's It's interesting because I, you know, a lot of us have friends or people that are close to us who have had similar experiences with an alcoholic mom or dad, but it's a real mixture of emotions, isn't it? Like, it's not like, it's not like, oh, I hate this man and that's the only thing I feel. And you use words like paradox, insecurity, confusion, anger. Uh, what from your experience, Jason, is the impact on a child of living with an addicted or alcoholic parent? Uh, well, it's, it, it's hugely affected. I mean, it affected, in essence, everything that I went on and did for the rest of my life in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. You know, I've never been drunk um, so there is some, I look at it in some ways, I tell people this is this is a good thing in a lot of ways because I've never wanted to drink because I'm afraid to become my dad. So I look at it from a positive perspective sometimes and say, 
I'm glad that my dad was who he is because who knows what could have happened if I had decided to drink alcohol for the first time. So I choose not to drink because of that. So there's effects from that side of it. But the negative effects, I mean, Carrie, I had no model of what it was like to be a man, to be a dad, um, to be a husband. I had none of that. So, you know, we just celebrated, my wife and I, 18 years of marriage. And I looked Mm. at that as an unbelievable miracle in a lot of ways (laughs) because I'm still learning how to be a husband. You know, my daughter is 13 years old. I'm still learning how to be a dad because I never had this model that I could look at and say, okay, remember when my dad did this? This is how he reacted here. No, it's right. I wanted to be everything my dad wasn't as yeah. a husband and as a dad. So I didn't have a model, an example of how to of how to live my life that I could say, you know what, that guy did it the right way. I want to be like him. I was basically saying I want to do everything that he wasn't. Everything that he did, I don't want to do. And it's certainly, I find myself gravitating towards certain behaviors that he exhibited, certain anger sometimes in in terms of um, short fuses and things like that, especially with my daughter that I have to fight. Um, You know, dysfunction, dysfunctionality or codependency or whatever the words Mm. that are used in a lot of these uh, sort of uh, rehabs and things like that are are thrown around a lot, but they exist. They, they They just do. And for me... It's scars. It's a lot of like baggage that you carry with you that you have to learn to. I mean, it's really a process of trying to learn to to work towards or work away from. I guess when you're trying to build your own family and build your own life. Um, but there's a chapter in the book called "Boxes in the Attic," and that's what it is. Your whole life has these memories. It has these these boxes that you store memories in in the attic, and you don't touch them or look at them. Uh, but at some point, you have to open them up. And when did that that's happen what for this you? Me. When did I mean, that happen it, for you? For opening up the boxes in the attic for me probably really started to take shape around the time when my dad was at his lowest point, 2013. Mm-hmm. So very recent. Uh, I had just turned 40 years old or I was on the verge of turning 40 years old. And uh, it was at this point as well when I was finally able to forgive him. And that's what the book sort of leads to, um, the idea of choosing to forgive, living to forgive. But for me, it was really those kind of moments when he was at his lowest point and I finally was able to have empathy and look at his life and say, man, I am just so saddened for this guy. Because for the longest time, it was just bitterness and anger. And yeah, uh, for like when so I, even when yeah. you were a teenager, and we'll get to the forgiveness part, but sure, of course. even when you were a teenager, like what did that look like? Were you, you decided, okay, I'm not into the party scene, I get that. And I find... You know, I'm an amateur psychologist, but um, yeah. I, and that's an exaggeration. <laughs> Aren't we all right? <laughs> you tend to you tend to either. I've seen the pattern of you become the person you don't like, or you become the yeah. opposite. But there's yeah. there's not a lot of middle ground. So you were trying to choose the opposite. Not going to drink. Not going to get into the party scene. But like, yeah. did the anger come out? Did the like what what did that do to you? And how did that shape who you were becoming as a man? Well. The first thing was I wanted to get away from it as much as possible. So I went away to college, you know, and I, I talk mm-hmm. about building up, building these barriers, um, to it, which I didn't even realize kind of at the time were happening that I was separating myself from what my dad yeah, was. Yeah, so it wasn't like conscious. It's not like I'm building a barrier and I'm not talking no. to my dad. You just did it. No, I mean, I was a high school, I was just a typical kid, you know, and, and who had, who felt like, okay, I have a divorced family here and my mom greatest mom ever is the one who kind of kept us afloat and really got us to have some sense of normalcy as kids. 
Um, as much as my dad was a mess and was absent from our lives, you know, my childhood, even though there are some specific moments in the book that were traumatic for me with him, was fairly normal. And, and you know, I, I went to school and I played sports and I, you know, I, uh, you know, and I did normal kid things and, and hmm. teen things. But looking back, you realize, um, you know, the choice not to party, the choice not to drink, you know, and, and a lot of these sort of role that I had to play as an older brother. And I was the oldest of three. And my mom, even though she remarried, I always felt sort of a fatherly way of be, I always felt there was a sort of a fatherly way for me to be with my brothers. And they certainly didn't like that. They're like, you're not my dad. But I yeah, would look yeah, at yeah. them like, we don't have but a you dad here. That. And that's typical oh, yeah. of oldest kids who Very try much to so. protect and play the parental role. Absolutely. And that was one of the things for me that I kind of had to learn it especially when I went away to college and I was by myself and I no longer had brothers that I had to kind of learn how to live on my own and, and learn how to grow up quickly. Um, but when I was in the midst of this in high school, you know, it wasn't, I didn't realize at the time that I was going through this. It was just kind of normal. Okay. My dad's messed up and he's in rehab and he's trying to get better. And my mom's here with us. And this is just kind of how it is. So It's the only normal you knew. The only normal I knew, and I think a lot of people have the same experience with that, Carrie. When especially at younger ages, they just adapt to the environment around them. And you know, I, I, I it pains me and tears me apart when I see young people in our church. Uh, I work with our youth, and, and certainly with my daughter and her friends, when there is a divorce or a broken relationship or a, an absent parent, because I was I lived that. I know what that was like, um, and I see a lot of them are just like this is just the way it is. It's a, it's their normal. And someday they'll understand, I think, that it doesn't, it shouldn't have had to be a normal for them, but you just kind of adapt to it. I think kids are really great at doing that. They just yeah. kind of, they just deal with it. I mean, they're probably they're more stronger than adults. Oh yeah, absolutely. You say you and your dad had some great memories. Like for example, you love the Boston Celtics and uh, Larry yes. Bird and Oh yeah. Like was was that a strange mixture? Love and <laughs> anger, love and rejection, love and hatred. Um yeah. cuz it's it, it, you get the picture that you were trying to like, oh good, everything's normal. Whoops, he's drunk again. No, it's not. Oh, I love my dad. Oh, I don't even want to be in the same room with him. Like uh, talk about that dynamic, that strangeness. Uh, I mean, it's it was it was Jekyll and Hyde. It's exactly mm. what it is. It was a relationship that I had that I wanted to have with him. You're, he's your dad, you know, and you you find you try to find a common ground uh, amidst the dysfunction that it is existing, right? Mm. And so for us, for me and him, the only common ground we had, even more common ground than my brothers had, because we all rooted for different teams, which is, I, I still think to this day, it's so weird because most families kind of all gravitate towards the same team. And yeah, we'll all be on cheer. for, you know, whoever. Let's yeah. put on our shirts and jerseys and go. And like for us, we all went our separate ways with the teams that we root for. But the only one that really is a common ground was the Celtics, the Boston Celtics and myself and my dad both rooted for them. My dad grew up a Celtics fan in the 60s with Bill Russell and all those championships. And, and in the 80s, as I'm getting older, Larry Bird comes on the scene and he becomes my sports hero. So my dad and I have this common ground of the Celtics. And it was the only common ground that we really had. I mean, we, we both love sports, but we didn't root for the same team. So when the Celtics were on, I remember going and watching the games with him and being excited about it. And we would both cheer for the same team and, and root for the same team. And there was some, you know, even from the dysfunctionality that we lived in, that was that was a something we could come together with 
uh, come together as father and son and just have a moment, have an experience together. But a lot of those moments and experiences were also very bad because of the, what you just described, of the, you know, you go and you watch a Celtics game together and be like, this is great, isn't it? Go Celtics. And all of a sudden he's had too much to drink. And all of a sudden you see the demon come out. Mm-hmm. You see this sort of roaring lion come out of him. And you're just like, all right, even though we're rooting for the same team, this is just not fun. This is not a good thing. And, you know, the few memories that we did have together, even as I got older, into my 20s, into my 30s with him, usually were surrounded by something that had to do with the Boston Celtics because it was the only common ground we could find in something that, again, should have brought us together, sports, but ultimately is what tore us apart. Isn't that interesting, you know? And and what what I pick up a little bit, uh, my friend Reggie Joyner and I, Mm. you know, wrote together a few years ago in this book, but there's a huge difference between fighting with and fighting for. And one of the things I think is really powerful about your story is like as many walls as you had to erect and, you know, boundaries to keep yourself safe, you never really stop fighting for the relationship with your dad. And I think there's something inside all of us that is kind of like, yeah, I wish, I just wish this was different. I just, you know, I don't want to give up. On the other hand, I can't just keep going back and getting, you know, slapped around day after day after day. Completely. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I would say, man, I just wish he would get sober. And part of that was selfish, I think, because I wanted him to get sober so I could have a relationship with him again. Uh, And the other part, obviously, was for him to get sober and just get healthier. Um, But there was fighting for it and fighting. Yeah, I mean, I... There was moments where I finally kind of just had to surrender. And as I got older and started getting, you know, got married and then had a had a child where I had to protect my family from that abuse and from what he was uh, living and going through. But deep down, even before I became a Christian and then after I got saved, I really just wanted him to get sober. It was it. I always say, can't you just get sober? Do it for your sons and then eventually do it for your grandkids. Do it for yourself. Like to me, it was the simplest thing. Like just stop drinking and everything will be fine. And unfortunately that was not the case, but I... I really did and fought for that relationship for a long time, but I also got hurt in fighting for that and allowing myself to to have this relationship with him when I probably should have even been more protective than I was, especially early on in my college years and my early 20s and mid 20s. Um, when you open yourself up, you're going to allow it's you're you're, you're going to open yourself up in a relationship, you have the potential to get hurt. And unfortunately, I did that quite a bit with my dad. I tried to allow him back into my life and tried to have this relationship. And ultimately, I got hurt quite a bit. By the way, if you hear some noise in the background, it's just leaf blowing season here. And uh, (laughs) they're in my backyard outside the window as we speak. So welcome to your home office and my home office. It's quieter (laughs) in Connecticut than it is in Canada right now. Yeah. but it's a good thing that those leaves are going away. I don't want to yes. lose the flow because I think this is sure. such a powerful story and I'm, I'm really excited about leaders hearing it because if this isn't your story, I'm almost positive it's somebody close to you. And, you know, for those of us who are yeah. pastors, man, there are dozens, if not hundreds or thousands of these stories in your church. And, yeah. you know, people are trying to recover from that. So let's talk a little bit about you as a dad, you as a husband, did did that kind of like you know all of our past comes into our present right we get that but 
like, how did that, did you find yourself um, like repeating some behaviors you wish you wouldn't, like, how did that impact you as a man trying to live your life? Like, how did that come back? Well, I mean, just from a, from a adapting to life standpoint, I didn't know how to do a lot of things. Yeah. You yeah. Know? So you mentioned that, right? Like I, just, re, just living with, I remember when my wife and I got married, you know, I, I couldn't, I mean, I, I'm exaggerating here, but I couldn't change a light bulb. I didn't know how to do anything. I never had that model to teach me how to do anything. Right. So just that perspective, my wife was like, what, what was it like? What was your past like? You know, but even when we first met, I was very embarrassed by my dad's situation that I really wanted to keep that away from being a part of what I was trying to build with my now wife. And, you know, it got to the point where even, and I mentioned this in the book, like where I didn't even want my dad at my wedding. You know, I, I had the opportunity. I wanted him to be there, but then it got to the point where he was still drinking and I had to make the very difficult choice to say, sorry, you can't come to the most important day of my life, which just pains me to say that even now. But I had to make this choice. I had to make this decision. And so my wife is seeing this and, and, and just supporting me through it, which was wonderful, but not really understanding it. She grew up with parents that are still together today with a dad who loved her and was there for her. And I didn't. And sort of coming into our two worlds and joining together as one and sort of figuring this out was not the easiest because, again, I had, I had, no, I had no model of how to be a husband. I didn't know what that meant or how to – I mean, I tried – basically just tried to do what my dad didn't. I tried to love my wife and support her and be there for her. But man, did I fail so many times and just so many different ways. I can't even give you every example to carry because I'm such a, I was such a novice in having any kind of example on what that meant. Uh, but there was a lot of behaviors that I sort of inhabited. I mean, just the sports behavior of being completely obsessed with sports and then being angry when my team would lose and being very vocal and and loud if the game was on, like my wife had never seen anyone like that. <laughs> so, and I know we kind of laugh at it, but that is a direct, direct uh, descendant, if you will, from my father. Like I got that yeah. directly from him. So there was behaviors like that, that I, my, my wife would say, man, you, you got that from your dad, didn't you? <laughs> and right, I would say, right. I guess I don't, I don't even realize that I have it. So I think there's a lot of things that I do that are sort of uh, habits or just inherited from the way he was. But man, I tried my hardest uh, and I still do to this day to just try to be the opposite of what I saw, the example that I saw, you know? Well, and it's got to be a lot of hurt because as you write in the book, and I mean, you uh, you X out some of the letters, but I mean, you'd get this yeah. just string of profanity and your dad calling you every name under the sun when he was drunk. And if you wouldn't do exactly what he said when he wanted to. So it was just like, I got to hang up the phone now, or I got to walk out of the room now. Right. Well, that's the difference. It's one thing for my dad to call and just ring me out or yell at me or me yell at him, or we have a really bad, you know, knock down, drag out phone call. But when you start bringing this into the family dynamic and, mm -hmm. and bringing Dawn into it, my wife and bringing Sarah into it, my daughter, now that's a whole new ball game. And some of these, there's a chapter called the dreaded phone calls. And my dad and I didn't live near each other for many years. So the only way we would communicate was via phone. 
And my dad is not a technology-driven guy. He, yeah. he barely has a cell phone. It's still a flip phone that he has. You know, he's <laughs> never texted in his life. He's never been on the internet in his life. Amazingly, he's, you know, the internet's been around 25 years and he's yeah. never even used it. So I'm dealing with someone here who can only communicate with you via, from afar by the old-fashioned way. And those phone calls, you'd, you'd love them when they were great calls, but you, you'd just scream and you cringe when they were the when they were a call, when he was calling you, when he was drunk. And when he starts bringing in abuse towards my family, man, now you're, now you're really hitting home. And that's when I would, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I hung up on him, how many times I, I would scream at him and have these, you know, really knock down drag out brawls with him on the phone and yelling at him uh, and doing in essence, the very thing that he was doing to me, I was handing it back to him. It was an eye for an eye, Carrie. I wanted my vengeance. I wanted my revenge. I wanted my anger. I wanted him to feel how angry I was. And so I would go right back at him with exactly what he was doing to me, even though I knew that he was under the influence and probably wouldn't remember half the conversation. I just had to get it out. And those phone calls, man, they were, uh, there were some terrible times there. You wrote in your book, what was I worth if my father chose alcohol over me time after time? Right to identity. And I guess as a kid, you kind of feel like, you know, I didn't grow up with an alcoholic father at all, uh, just probably more like your wife's family. Um, but that's got to make you think, I guess I just don't have any value, right? How, do, how did you process that? Um, early on, I processed it through therapy. You know, my mom was great um, when we were teenagers. She took us into uh, a counselor, a therapist, and we had we were able to kind of talk through a lot of different things regarding my dad, regarding just life, you know, in the dysfunctional you know, family that we had. Um, as I got older, you know, I, I really didn't think a lot about it other than when it was, it became sort of an obsession with me, to be honest with you, about becoming a father myself. Um, and a lot of that had to do with the, the lack of identity I had in my own life of, of having a dad there for me. And so when I decided, or when we got married and we decided we were going to try and have children right away, and we write about our, our walk through infertility in the book, we spent four and a half years trying to get pregnant. And I, I think I took it even harder than my wife. And a lot of that had to do with the wrestling with God over whether he wanted me to be a dad. And I, I had this passion, this desire Everything inside of me wanted to be a father. And I think that really all stemmed from this, uh, this void that I had in my life and wanting to uh, give back everything that I did not get as a, as a, as a kid, but also just as a son. Because even as an adult, I, I felt like I didn't get back what I should have as a, as a son from his own father. And we weren't able to get pregnant for four years. And I just kept wondering, God, what are you doing here? There was a lot of anger issues um, from that side, especially with a God that I was just starting to understand and learn about. Uh, so identity was a big thing for me because I, I, I felt like my worth was so caught up in not having a dad that was there for me and then not being able to be the dad that I so desired uh, as I became an adult, got married and started to turn, really turn 30 years old and still wasn't able to be that dad that I wanted to be. I, I didn't understand it. It was very frustrating for me. You also write, uh, what I didn't know was that dad's struggle with alcoholism was perfectly paralleling my struggle with forgiveness. 
And I mean, this is this is where you've kind of ended up. And yeah. I mean, it's a pretty powerful story because I think our past always impacts our ability to lead, the way we interact with our family, whether it's good at home, whether it's bad at home, you know, all of that. Um, let's talk about forgiveness. Um, how did that, because I mean, you know, did you have to forgive your dad before he even sought forgiveness or how did that work out in the story? Well, I thought I had forgiven my dad many, many times. So a little backstory, I became a Christian on Mother's Day of 2001. That was the day I accepted Christ. Then I started to gradually grow and understand who Jesus was and what it meant to, um, to walk with him, you know, understanding salvation and the gospel. So that took about a year or two. So I, I was being forgiven every single day, Carrie. And I, I, would, I would ask that forgiveness for and repent over the mistakes that I had made and truly looked at who Christ was and just grateful to him for, for that. So every single time that I would get back into what you would call a dialogue with my dad over these years, these 2002 to 2013 year, this 10-year span, that's when I really started to kind of say, okay, I know what forgiveness is. And it's clear that if I'm having this conversation with my dad or if I'm talking to him again, that I've forgiven him. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't the case. For me, I thought it was. I I was like, yeah, of course I forgave him. I'm talking to him on the phone and I'm allowing him back into my life. But there wasn't, there was still a lot of bitterness. And I've learned over the years, especially as I've done research and, and, and certainly entered deep into the idea of what forgiveness is now, that I had a lot of bitterness and anger that I never really allowed myself to feel, to process, to transform. I never allowed that to, to I allowed that to, to bind me up, you know, because mm. forgiveness, when you don't forgive the person that you're not, that you're, that hurts is hurt the most when you don't forgive is yourself. Right. And I took me a while to learn that. Cause I would say, why am I still so bitter at him when he does call drunk? Why am I still so angry? Why am I still so so vocally, uh, in some ways, abusive back to him. Why am I screaming at him? Why am I? Why is this bothering me so much? And it took to his lowest point. And his lowest point was in June of 2013. And he tried to end his life. He he took a bunch of pills. And Carrie, there was a level of depression that was building in him now, not just from the alcoholism, but just depression. Uh, you know, psychologically with him over the last kind of two years before that, that started to really, he was clinically di- you know, diagnosed as, as depressed. And so he was dealing with depression and with this abuse of alcohol, and it just kind of spiraled and mixed together all the way, culminating with this time in 2013. When I get a call from a nurse in a, uh, I guess you call it a, the psychiatric ward of a hospital in Albany, New York, telling me that my father was there and that he had tried to kill himself. And I laughed at her. I felt weird laughing, but it was sort of a nervous laugh. And I just said, no, this can't be true. My dad's called me many times threatening to do this, but he's he's never really came, you know, he's never really followed through on it. Right. It was usually just the alcohol talking. But this was the time when he followed through. He took pills uh, and he tried to end it. And he, I think he quickly realized um, that at what he had done. So he, he's the one that ended up calling the hospital and calling 911 and they came and they took him to the hospital and, and, and in essence saved him. But I couldn't believe what I had heard from this nurse telling me that my dad had tried to end his life. So at that moment, I had to really do some soul searching. 
because uh, I didn't know how I was going to even approach the conversation because I knew there would be a conversation eventually with him. And so I started to really dig deep in my soul and say, okay, have, have you truly forgiven this guy? And there was a moment there, Carrie, where I, I was reading God's word and I, and I saw, you know, you read the, the passages where it's certainly John 3.16 and you just see that Christ died for everyone. Yeah. That, that he's, he came to this earth for each and every one of the people here on earth. And I used to think that, you know what, uh, God can forgive my dad, but I can't. And then I realized, wait a minute, this Jesus that I follow forgives me every single day and views my dad the same way he views me. We're on equal playing field here. And that was very difficult for me to comprehend and understand. But when I got that, that was the moment when I said, you know what? There's something bigger going on here. I I, got to forgive this man. I got to forgive him from what he had did. Now, there's a big difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. I preached about yeah, this a couple yeah, weeks yeah. ago. Yeah, 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 let's talk about that. Huge difference because when you forgive someone, again, the prisoner you're setting free is yourself. You're forgiving someone, it doesn't mean you're letting them off the hook. It doesn't mean justice shouldn't be done if they had done something illegally to you. It doesn't mean that they're um, you know, that they're going to be free from all the bad things that they've done to that person, or the abuser if you will. But what it does is it frees yourself. It, it means you're not keeping marks. You're not keeping a, a, you know, a box score of all the wrongs that have been done in your life. You're, you're, you're moving on from that. But the reconciliation part is much different because not all relationships are repairable. So right. some relationships, even though you forgive the person, it doesn't mean you're going to be able to reconcile and get back together, whatever kind of relationship that is. Uh, and I didn't know if that was going to be the case with my dad. I really didn't. When I chose to forgive him, it was forgiving him and saying, okay, if you continue to drink, if you continue to try and uh, be abusive, whatever, you know, I'm not going to hold that as a grudge anymore. I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to still have those barriers. I'm still going to be very aware of what's happening, but I am not going to allow that to sort of run and, and, and bind my life up into these chains that I felt like I was kind of stuck in for a long time. So in choosing to forgive him, I remember having a phone call about a week later, he called me and I didn't even know how, how he was able to get a phone to call me quite honestly from the psych ward, but he did. And when we talked, I heard this broken, lifeless man on the other end who did not want to live. So there was still a good moment there for a couple of weeks where he, he just didn't want, he's like, I, I just have no desire to be alive, Jay. And I felt so wow. much empathy for him when I'm hearing this that I chose him. I said, listen, I am so sorry for what you're going through, dad. I really am. So empathy started to come out, which was the first time I really ever had that with him. And then forgiveness when I just simply said, listen, I forgive you for what you've done. If our relationship is not repairable, okay, so be it. But I got to, I, I choose to forgive you because Christ forgave me. Because Christ forgave you, I forgive you. And that was kind of the moment, Carrie, where I just kind of said, that's it. You know, that's, it's it for me. I'm not going to have these chains bind me anymore. Again, no promises that the relationship was going to be reconciled, but that was the choice I had to make. Empathy for the oppressor. You got a whole chapter on that. Let's talk about that for a minute. That's a hard one for a lot of people. It's like, all right, I'll forgive him. I'll release him. But like to feel empathy for the oppressor, that that is a stretch. So talk about that part of the journey for you. You know, I looked up the definition of empathy and it says it's understanding, simply understanding the feelings of others. Mm. And for the longest time, I never really cared to understand 
my dad's feelings. I was just angry and I wanted him to stop drinking. And I didn't care what his thoughts were, what his feelings were about me or about him or whatever. I just wanted him to stop drinking. Empathy for me was to the point where I finally said, and it was when he was in that hospital, having just tried to end his life, when I realized, oh my gosh, this guy is going through hell right now. Let, let me put myself in his position for just a minute because I don't think this man really wants to be where he is right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't, you don't choose to kind of be in a, such a broken state in life where you're sitting in a, a psych ward, you know, basically on the verge of wanting to be dead. Like that's not something most people choose to want to be like that. That's a terrible place to be. Right. So I had to have, you know, some deep introspective look, looking at where he was and say, okay, my dad is in a, is a mess right now. And I have to certainly look at that and say, okay, I, and that's where the, I'm so sorry, what you're going through came in. I don't think I've ever said that to my dad in 40 years until he called me broken that day. And I just, I really felt so terribly sorry for where he was in his life. Um, and that's where the empathy came in. It, you know, when we're angry and when somebody hurts us, we don't want to have empathy. We want to just be angry or we want vengeance and we want uh, justice to be served, right? Um, but sometimes when we take a look at what the other person is going through, especially if there's remorse, which I don't even know if there was a lot of remorse because I don't remember my dad kind of apologizing really. I just remember him saying, you know, I just don't want to live, Jay. I just don't want to live. This is, this, I, I, I hate where I am right now. And so there just became this this real remorse in me of understand not remorse but empathy in me understanding that this guy is such in such a broken state it's not it's not a place for me to sit there and pile on to him right now which i kind of wanted to do i wanted to just say don't you get it what is wrong with you you deserve this right you There's deserve part of this. that in all of us this is 40 years of culminating of you drinking and treating your family like crap you deserve this but when i talk to him man i I just, I, I don't know why, but the lens kind of, you know, the fog kind of came off of the glass a little bit and allowed me to see a little more clearly what this man was going through and trying to be, you know, we're Christ-like, right? We're trying to be more Christ-like. I think that was probably a day where I saw finally through the lens of Christ what my dad was going through and what would Jesus do, that old WWJD. And I saw it and I said, wow, I think he would just have empathy for this guy and pray for him. So. Can you tell us where things are now between you and your dad? There's a pretty cool picture near the end of the book, and uh, it's it's not a sad ending. I mean, I guess it's still in process, right? But yeah. tell us where you and your dad are at today and how you got there. So the crazy part of this whole story is that my dad, from that day when he tried to end his life, has not had a drink. So start with that first, just him being sober. Now, four and a half years, yeah. he hadn't been sober his whole life. I think the longest he was ever without a drink in the 40 years or so, my first 40 years of my life was maybe nine months, six to eight wow. months, somewhere in there, maybe a year tops. So he's now four and a half years sober. That's the good thing. Uh, he is uh, doing much better. You know, it was a, it is a process. So he has not had a drink since that day that he tried to end his life. So it's a pretty remarkable journey to see him where he is now, um, to see him transformed, to see him healed, uh, to see him uh, completely uh, not craving alcohol anymore. Uh, and we've talked about this. We have deeper conversations about this now. 
in the first six months to a year, I was very skeptical uh, about his sobriety because we had seen this six-month to nine-month pattern. Uh, we were happy. We were glad that he was able to get sober and starting to get sober. But I was very guarded that first year, very guarded. And when I say guarded, I mean allowing him to be even part of my life, to, to see his granddaughter. To, it's almost like a wait and see. Let's just see oh, how long yeah. this lasts, right? And that's from the 40 years of everything that happened prior. That's just yeah. natural. So I was very guarded, but there was still something different because of that choice to forgive. So being able to at least know that I wasn't carrying this bitterness anymore. I, I, was, I was guarded, but I wasn't carrying a bitterness towards him anymore. And it just gradually started to get better and better. And slowly we would, because that's, that's really what a process of forgiveness is, Carrie. It's a slow process. It's usually, it's an instant choice, but it's a slow process over time to build back up any kind of relationship when you're trying to put it in repair mode. And for myself and my dad, the reconciliation has still continued to this day. Uh, but we're in a much better place. We have a, a great relationship right now. It's been about a year and a half or two years where we talk every week. We've set boundaries on our phone calls. You know, that goes back to the phone calls that we had back before. So we would set it, let's just talk once a week, dad. Let's have a great half hour to 45 minute conversation once a week. Obviously, if things happen and we need to call each other, we will. But we just make sure once a week we have a really uh, a call that we have that we talk. Um, sports still dominates our conversation. Uh, and we talk about the Celtics quite a bit. We've actually been able to go to a couple Celtics games. And I write about that at the end of the book, sort of a, a nice culmination to the book is the time that my dad and I finally went back and saw the Celtics together in 2016 for the first time, maybe in 25 years. And it was, it was comforting to know that I hadn't have to worry about him uh, getting a drink or sneaking off with some kind of alcohol in him or knowing that we have to might drive home on a terrible experience there. No, it was just a really wonderful went to the game. It was redemptive. Father son moment. Yeah, it was. So yeah. we're in a really in a really great place right now. I know your story is going to speak to a lot of leaders. I really do. Uh, some are like, wow, I wish it had that kind of happy ending. I wish I was as far down the road. But for some it's very real. Yeah. Any thoughts on what a first step for people for whom this is very much a live issue, unresolved, or even if they're, where they're at the point where they're realizing that their past has been carried into the present, it's going to sabotage their future. Where where do they start? I think there's a few, the, the book is broken up into four parts, feeling the pain, evalu, evaluating the trauma, transforming the wound, and forgiving the abuser. So I think the first place to start is un, is feeling that pain and letting it out because so many of us bottle that pain up and try to cover it up and pretend it doesn't exist. Uh, for me, that was very much the case for many years as I was getting older and starting my career in broadcasting and eventually to ESPN, I would kind of mask that and just kind of cover it up and pretend it didn't exist. And unfortunately, when I did that, the moments when I was finally getting angry and going through the process of, of being hurt by my father, it would just explode like a bomb. It was awful. So I think starting with feeling the pain, acknowledging that it's there and walking through that, working through that. And then, you know, the evaluating the trauma, uh, looking at what's happening and then transforming the wound and then forgiving. I think, like I said before, there's a big difference between forgiving the abuser who has hurt you 
and reconciling and a big difference between forgiving the abuser and letting them off the hook. People feel like when they forgive someone that they're letting them off the hook. Like they they allowed them to hurt you and it's and they can just kind of run free and they don't have to pay the price for what they did. And that's just not the case because as followers of Christ, man, what do we deserve every single day if we didn't get that forgiveness from the Lord? You know what I'm saying? So that's really where I would tell people to start is to to feel that pain first. And I would honestly tell them if they're believers in Christ, because I know some people aren't, and that's certainly you know their right to think that way and feel that way. But I would say if you're a believer in Christ, man, cling to Jesus. Like go to him with your issues, with your problems. Just have at it. Just tell him everything that you're going through. Go into the word and look at what he says about forgiveness. And when he talks to Peter and Peter says, Lord, how many times am I supposed to forgive this person who has wronged me? Jesus says 70 times seven, meaning forever. You Mm -hmm. forgive every single time. So if we're going to call ourselves Christ followers, man, if we're not forgiving, we're in essence trying to put our hand to Jesus's face and say, no, I'm good. I got this. I'm on my own here. So there's a lot of levels to it, but the best place to start is really just to acknowledge that it's happening and not bottle it up. How did you know that you had actually forgiven your dad? What was that moment where you're like, because you said I tried, I thought I had, I thought, what was like the moment where you're like, yes, I really feel like right now that was the defining moment? I think actually saying it, when, when I said it to him, dad, I forgive you. Uh, over everything that's happened, and I'm so sorry that you're going through this. When I said that to him and I hung up the phone, I was very sad. I remember going to my wife, and my wife usually has witnessed me on these phone calls with my dad screaming and yelling, and I hang up the phone, and I just start going off on her, and, and I'm like, why just can't he figure this out? And I remember hanging up the phone, and my wife sees me, and I go, oh my gosh, I, I can't believe what he's going through. I, I said, I, I finally chose to forgive him, though, because I can't, I can't carry this anymore. Um, it's not my issue. It's God's and it's his. And I can't carry this burden anymore. And so that was the moment. And wow. you really legitimately feel this invisible weight carry on your shoulders kind of taken away. That's what it felt like for me. Uh, I didn't know if he was going to get better. I didn't know if he would even live, to be quite honest mm-hmm. with you. But I knew there was some regret inside of me, I think, that if I chose not to forgive him, if I continued to not forgive him, and then he did pass... I don't know if I could have, how I would have dealt with that for uh, for myself. I would have had this grief, this this regret for I think for a long time because people have regrets over what they did or didn't say to the people before totally. they pass on. And for me, I I didn't know if my dad was going to live. So I think part of it was motivated by the fact that I needed to tell him that he was forgiven by me at least, even though he didn't necessarily need to hear it from me. You know, because he needed to to hear it. He needs to hear it from the Lord as well. But I needed to tell him that but not for him, but for me. I needed to release myself from that, uh, no matter what was going to happen. And I don't know if I could have lived with the idea of him passing on or moving on and dying and me having not forgiven him. That would have been really difficult. So I think part of it was motivation to just say, you know what, I got to do this. I got to do this. Well, the book is called Live to Forgive. It comes out in January of 2018. Correct. January 15th of 2018. Is wow. the release date. Yeah. I'm so glad you wrote it. It's actually really, really well written. And uh, Jason, people are going to want to track with you. You've got your own website. You also are a podcaster now. So tell us where people can find you and, and dive deeper into the story and, and maybe some of their story too. 
true. I would love to hear from people um, about their story. This, first of all, with the book, you can you can find out more information on the book from my website, a new revamped website, jasonromano.com. So it's just jasonromano.com. And if you go on that website, you'll see the book right there on the front page and you can click the link and it'll take you to where you can pre-order uh, from the publisher. Uh, and you can also order it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all the other places that you can get books uh, as well. Um, so you can go there. And my website also has some information on some of the speaking I've been doing and some information about consulting and all that, which has been really fun to do. And you mentioned my podcasting. Yeah, it's been wonderful to be a part of this podcast called Sports Spectrum. And I do the interviews, which is strange still to say, uh, because yeah. I was a behind the scenes <laughs> guy for many years. But I've been doing this podcast now since March of 2017. And we're interviewing some of the biggest names in sports. And it's all a conversation about sports and faith. They usually, it's an intersection of sports and faith. And some of these interviews are focused more on the sports side of things with a little bit of faith. And some of these are focused a lot on faith in Christ with a little bit of sports mixed in. Some powerful stories, some incredible stories from people you know and from people you don't know. And that that's, can be found anywhere on my pages, but you can also go to sportspectrum.com to find all of the information about the podcast. But yeah, I mean, I'm on Twitter at Jason Romano and people can reach me there uh, as well and, and Facebook and Instagram and all those places on social media. Great. And we'll link to all that in the show notes. One of the reasons I'm so grateful you told this story, Jason, is, you know, number one, I think it's hard for guys to talk about this. And number two, you're a sports guy. I don't know whether it, you get more sports guy than you. Um, <laughs> I mean, and and often we don't talk about this stuff. And yeah. yet it can be sinking our marriage. It can be sinking our parenting. It can be sinking our leadership. It can be, you know, the inner journey just like Lewis Howes has recently written about, you know, the mask of, uh, the mask of, of masculinity, yes. the whole deal. Like I just, I really applaud you for telling the story and your dad had the humility to be part of the story too, which I know you talked to him about the book and the whole deal, but yeah. I just want to say thank you. I think you helped a lot of leaders today and you're going to help a lot of leaders. Uh, and I hope lot, the book gets into a lot of hands. Just yeah. thank you so much. And you tell well, it really, really well in the book. It's hard to put down. Thank you, uh, Carrie. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I wrote down a couple of weeks ago, I'm scared to death because it's, you're, you're putting out your story for everyone to read. And there's, you're pretty there's vulnerable, a, right? There's you're, a vulnerability really there that, that is terrifying in a lot of ways because you're letting your life be read and seen by so many people. But, you know, that's my prayer. It's the only reason I wrote it was if it can help other people, if it can help them work towards healing, if it can help them work towards some kind of forgiving or reconciliation in their own life and then, then it was yeah. worth writing and that's what my dad said he's like if it can help one person write this book jay so that's why i wrote it so thank you so much i appreciate it amazing well thank you jason i know we'll have you back thank you absolutely love to be back big fan of yours thanks carrie jason i'm so grateful for your story and the way that you're able to tell it i know you're going to help a lot of leaders uh, well today on the podcast but also with the book Live to Forgive when it releases. If you want details, you can go to the show notes. Just um, go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 171 or go to leadlikeneverbefore.com and just type in Jason's name. You'll find both of his episodes there. Um, just a couple things to remind you of. Make sure that you get the free calendar template before it goes away. It is happening this week. You can go to thehighimpactleader.com. Then next week, for those of you who've been waiting, and there are many of you who've been waiting for the High Impact Leader registration to open, it happens next week. So don't miss it right after Christmas. 
use some of your Christmas money or give your, give yourself a gift. Give yourself your life and leadership back. Make 2018 better than 2017. And you can even start right now by getting that free calendar template and the free video course that I'm offering before the full course releases. So you can get all that at thehighimpactleader.com and visit the good folks at lifewayleadership.com slash ministry grid and make sure you claim your free training by the end of the year and sign up your team for a better 2018. Hey, we're back next week. Uh, got the last episode of the year. And then if you haven't subscribed yet, man, you don't want to miss 2018. In 2018, we have Craig Rochelle kicking things off. Then we're going to hear from Jeff Henderson, Brian Miles for all you Australians. Margaret Spicer is going to be on. Cheryl Batchelder is going to be a, a guest next year. Um, Tim Elmore, William Vanderbloom, and so many great folks. Brian Miles from Belay Solutions. The way you make sure you don't miss any of this is you subscribe, and you can do that for free wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, here's an excerpt from a fascinating conversation that's happening next week between a rabbi and a Christian pastor. I interviewed them both about, believe it or not, the Jewishness of Jesus. Check it. What was happening in these debates was more interfamily debates. And ultimately, this is what I've, I've, I've talked about you know, in, in, in churches and synagogues many times is both Jesus, Paul, Akiba, and Hillel, who were two famous rabbis, they were struggling. What does it mean to be a good Jew in the first century? And Paul especially said to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So they, they didn't see themselves as a disconnect from Judaism. Right. Uh, that came later. And restoring that feeling of connection I think in today's world is where we live and people of so many different faiths and building those ties closer is enriching for all of us. So Robbie Gallaty and Rabbi Evan Moffick are my guests next week. They were separate interviews, but I kind of stitched them together because they're helping us see Jesus in a very, very different way as we close out this year. So again, subscribers, you'll get that automatically. I'm so excited, um, well, to be back next week. And the High Impact Leader course opens. Super excited for that. Thanks so much for listening. I really do hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.